Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mormonism Live. Good evening, my companion in arms, Bill Real. RFM, how are you? I'm doing great. Can't you tell? Yeah, life is good. What? Uh, yeah, what's going on? Well, I just got done last Saturday presenting by Zoom at Thrive in Florida. That's one thing. Yeah. How about you? I see you're growing a little mustache, it looks like. A very little mustache. And yeah. I don't know if I'm going to keep it very long because it's starting to really bother me. I've tried to grow facial hair a few times, and I end up with a line all the way down where no hair grows. Really? So, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing, you know? So I just end up being, you know, relatively clean shaven all the time. It's my yeah. only option. I probably will, too, because my hair yeah, kind of attacks good. my face. Yeah, well, you look good. I'm glad to see you. I'm just, uh, what a great uh, chance to get back together and do another episode of Mormonism Live. Well, tonight's episode is titled... Critical Scholarship and Book of Abraham Historicity. Just when you thought it was safe to go back into the Book of Abraham Waters, we're going to have two special guests on the show to talk about recent and perhaps even new things that they've discovered about the Book of Abraham and their researches. I'm talking specifically about Dan Bogle and Brent Metcalf. But before we get there and bring them on, Bill, did you have something that you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to take a moment just to to tell folks, I said this this morning in a podcast, well, this afternoon I did a podcast talking about the missionary numbers and the member numbers from the statistical report. But uh, our donations are doing pretty well as an entity. They're on pace for about what they were last year. But just FYI, Mormonism Live's donations are significantly down. And uh, What? Yeah, they are. So to the point where uh, we've brought in Mormonism Live in new donations, new recurring subscribers or, or donators and new donations – Mormonism Lives brought in like $1,500 through uh, its donation button uh, going to DonorBox. And so just FYI, other podcasts are doing pretty well. Like Almost Awakened has got like 1400 bucks so far, and it only raised like $300 last year. Um, I know like Rammy Upton Ruminations and some of the other ones are doing quite well. But just FYI to our listeners who seem to really love the show, Mormonism Lives donations are down significantly. And if you would go, if you're, for those who do donate, by the way, thank you very much. I'm not asking anything more from you. you. You do great. I don't really want much from folks. If folks love the show and they want to see us do this for years and years, just hit the donate button at mormonismlive.org. Uh, click that donate button and then just drop us five bucks a month, something, something reasonable. You know, if you want to pay us 60 bucks a year or something like that, it, it really does go a long way to, uh, helping Radio Free Mormon be able to use his time wisely in terms of uh, producing content and doing research for the podcast. Uh, and it also helps the entity and myself uh, as well. So uh, if we could just encourage folks who do benefit, because no offense to everyone else, Mormonism Live is the show that gets the most views and seems to get the most um, publicity and get the most kind of attraction to folks. 
And I just want to note that those are down and give you guys a chance to, to support the show. And we'd really appreciate it. Lift where you stand. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So anyway, but regardless, uh, we're having a blast and things are going well and we're having a great time putting these together. Yes. And we've been working really hard on tonight's episode. And by we, I mean Dan Vogel and Brent Metcalf, although I've certainly been talking with them a great deal on the phone. Dan has a number of slides that he's put together. Brent has put together some slides on discoveries that he's made, which we hope to get to tonight. But in order to do that, we probably better bring them on and get started. What do you think, Bill? You might be muted, Bill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sorry. We've added them to the stream. I'm going to put some names up so we don't have to flip screens all the time. <laughs> and that's going to be right. Uh, let's Hello, everybody. Uh, anytime there's no comments, Maven, from time to time, if you'll just have no comments on the screen for a few seconds here or there, just so people can see those names. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, there's Dan Vogel and Brent Metcalf, two of the leading people in Book of Abraham studies. I think I can say that without any fear of contradiction. Uh, I, 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 I think I think you probably can as well. So Then it must be true because you're a very humble bumble. And if you say that's true, it's got to be true. Yeah, it's well, let's put it this way. It's something that Dan and I have been in the historical trenches on for decades. This isn't like a new fad that we got into. This is something we've been doing for a very, very long time. And, you know, I have I had already gone through and done transcripts of the different manuscripts, you know, related to the Book of Abraham and Joseph Smith's Egyptian project before the Joseph Smith papers ever came out with theirs. Right. I had already gone through and done all of that, even after Mike Marquardt did his, which that was a great start considering the the type of source that he had to deal with, right? Which was a microfilm of them. And then I had photographs and I went through and did transcripts of all the documents, you know, right down to all the the erasures, the changes that were made, and everything else. And um, so this is something, you know, that that we've both been involved in for decades. And, and as I said, I, I had done this decades ago. And here we are, you know, so yeah. And here we are. Here we, we are. Know, we know our shit, right? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Can would I you agree, say would that? You agree with that, Dan? Can I say that on here? I think you just you can did. say anything. Okay. All right. Yes. You can say it again you if you wanted to. Later. Yeah. I, I mean, no. We we've read these documents so many times. It's not even funny. I mean, I think that that's probably one of the the biggest complaints that Dan and I have about folks who um, take an apologetic approach is that sometimes we're so bewildered. It's like, have you even read these documents? And, you know, again, here we are. You know, I, I've read them more times than I can count. 
Well, well the Egyptologists um, don't focus on the English documents all that well. And that's where we come in because that we're early Mormon document specialists. And right, not- exactly. And I was talking with exactly. someone earlier who had mentioned about, you know, after 13 hours with Robert Ridner, what more is there to say? And I think that's an important distinction is that Robert Ridner had a lot to say about Egyptology. But he yes. didn't really have anything to say about the early documents like the Abraham Egyptian or translation documents right. that were made as right. part of creating the Book of Abraham. Well, well, well one, one of the things that I actually focused on was going through and correcting handwriting identifications in the manuscripts. I haven't seen any of the Egyptologists doing that, right? Right. And so, so that's that's one of the things that I I've tried to do, and and I've disco- discovered some incredibly unique things with these documents. Uh, just as a quick example, um, Joseph Smith's uh, Egyptian alphabet document. You know, it's it was thought that there there was uh, the word kolob was in Warren Parrish's na- handwriting. It's not. It's in Joseph Smith's handwriting. At the end of the document, there are some words dealing with Avroam and so on. And actually, we have right there Joseph Smith's handwriting, William W. Phelps, and Oliver Cowdery. All three of them are on this document. That has not never been talked about before. And so that's the type of level that we have to take this to. We can't be satisfied anymore with just treating these documents in such simplistic ways. We need to be analyzing every detail of these documents, you know, understanding every erasure that occurs and what the meaning is when a name is changed or something like that. Um, and that's not something that I've really seen. And now I think that both Dan and I have that interest. And I think that Robin and Brian with their Joseph Smith papers project had the same interest. And so I, I was very pleased and proud of what they had done. And I hope to see more analysis like that in the future all right so let me just jump in here in order to segue into the main uh thrust of tonight's presentation which involves slides which goes to one of my favorite apologists my favorite egyptologist apologist dr john gee because he said something recently that's going to be in the first slide and that caught dan's attention enough that he wanted to elaborate upon it and brent will as well tonight But exactly what he was saying was all the critics are all focusing on these translation documents like you were talking about. And apparently he, John Gee, feels sufficiently uncomfortable with the translation documents that he doesn't want people to look at those. Instead, he wants them to look at the text of the Book of Abraham itself. And then he sort of chides critics for what he says is they never look at the text, (laughs) implying implying that the text itself would carry the day for the Book of Abraham's historicity and authenticity, regardless of what the translation documents look like. We've got 
Maven here showing up on the yeah, screen. Sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting, but I yeah. did want to say thank you to everybody who's been donating. Um, we've had several donations since asking. Oh. Um, Doug, for 100, um, Adam donated 20. Um, I don't know if it's Swanee or Sweeney Speed Ramsey, 20. Um, and then we have an anonymous donation for 100, another one for 20. Paul, $5, thank you so much. And then we have one for $1,000. So thank you, whoever that was. We really Holy cow. That. Hey, I want to say thank you for everybody, for the $1,000, for the $5, for everything in between. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Maven, thanks for bringing that, yep. that up. And Maven, do you have the first slide with John Gee? Oh, yes, I do. It's got a picture of John Gee on it. To me, it looks like he sort of had the ring of power a little too long. Yeah, I think that brick wall is kind of uh, symbolic. Yeah. <laughs> but there he is. This is from last December or so when he's doing an yeah. interview with Scott Gordon from Fair. And it's either it's either the ring too long or he's doing his Uncle Joe impression from Petticoat Junction. I can't remember which or I can't I can't tell which. But here's the first quote there. Hey, Bill, are you there? Do you have your I mouth am. full? I do, I but I can still read. Go ahead and read. Read with your mouth. Right, the audience loves go. that. I just told I just told the, the viewers not to judge me. I'm trying to finish up dessert. I made dinner tonight and I was running late. So here we go. Uh, maybe I'll sound like John Gee with food in my mouth. You might. Um, the critics don't really get into the content of the book of Abraham. They don't read it carefully. In some cases, don't read it at all. And a lot of them just dismiss it as not being historically authentic. So they don't need to read it. They don't need to test it. And so if you eliminate the text from consideration, then the only sort of discussion point that you get is the translation issue. So that's why the critics are all concerned with the translation, but not the result of the translation. Let me throw this to Dan and say, do you think that's correct? Because I think you're a critic. I think you were what John Gee would call a critic. I think Bryn is too. Uh, do you never deal with the text? Well, th this is irony. Because <laughs> you know, uh -huh. um, we do deal with the text and uh, and actually they only deal with little parts of it uh, that support their uh, views on uh, trying to prove or use it as a tool to prove that it's uh, ancient. Don't look at the alphabet and grammar and the characters with the, the fake translation next to them. Don't look at those. Right. Look at these parallels that we draw between the text and the ancient world, and they'll quote anything in the ancient world for a span of thousands of years over any country, any thousands of miles <laughs> to get their wow. parallels. You know, yes. we all heard of the phrase parallel mania. Well, this is where you make parallels that are just are not appropriate, have no context. Um, we might run into some later in our discussion. All right, Dan, I'm throwing it to you because these oh, okay. are mainly the slides that you have arranged and ordered. So yes, you, you take jump the ball. Jump in any time. Jump in any time you want. Okay. Okay, so Maven, the next slide, please. And, and before he, anybody goes on, just FYI, um, the comment up on the screen right now is not true. YouTube does not take anything because we're a nonprofit and we are registered with YouTube. The chat over to the right, once in a great while, is a super chat, and there'll be a bunch of colored stickers and all that kind of stuff. Those are not tax deductible, by the way. YouTube keeps 30% of those. We get 70. 
but more money does come in that way because people seem to be having more fun. The way it's set up right now, over to the right of the screen, actually I'm pointing the wrong way, it has to be the opposite. Um, the way it, it is set up right now, that we are tax exempt, we are registered with, with YouTube. They cover all of the processing costs and they send 100% of the money to us. So you can donate right there to the right and we do get all of that. All right, thanks for clarifying that, Bill, because I know a lot of listeners want to make sure that their dollars are going where they want them to go. Dan, back to you, right. my friend. So this is the timeline for 1835. Um, this does not include uh, what Joe Smith did in Nauvoo. But we want you to have at least an idea of how it progressed because an important argument comes out of this, a little item of time. Well, so Joe Smith gets the papyri in... Uh, or purchases them in early July, uh, 1835. And then in by eight, late uh, 18, uh, July, 1835, he's produced an, uh, three alphabets. And then he started a grammar book. So you can see the grammar book at the top and another book, which doesn't exist anymore, I call it a translation book. This is where uh, the translation started. The first three verses were entered into this book about the same time or just before the grammar book was uh, created and uh, begun um, in late July. And the last entries were in October of 1835. Then we get to the to the next part, which is November 1835. And that's where Abraham, chapter 1, verse 4 to 2, verse 6, is simultaneously dictated to uh, Frederick G. Williams and Warren Parrish. Then after that, uh, Warren Parrish copies those into that translation book. And then uh, takes dictation from Joseph Smith all the way up to chapter 2, verse 18. And that's what we're going to focus on in our discussion today. So the important element here is that there's two months where Joseph Smith, after dictating three verses, he has two months to think about what he's going to dictate the following November, whenever he's ready, but it happened to be November. And he also has a time where he creates these Egyptian alphabets and a grammar and he can brainstorm and, and think of ideas. So any comments, gentlemen? No, not right now. How about you, Brent? Uh, well, I, I was just going to say that um, those first three verses are extremely interesting because there's a portion of them that seems to have dependency on the grammar and alphabet. And the reason why I say that is because um, it's they are duplicated twice in that volume. And in the first instance, the demarcator is it's a series of commas that separate the different clauses, whereas in the second instance, which is a later instance, right? Because the the book is actually being written from back to front. And so in the second instance, 
it's separated. The demarcators are all semicolons. That's what appears in the actual uh, final, you know, first three verses of the translation document. And that suggests that at least that portion, it has some type of dependent relationship with the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. And so, um, or I should say the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. Some people have been chastised for using the old term that people used to call it all the time. But, uh, you know, so I think that that that's demonstrable and um, that and when Dan says that there was a translation volume, this is very important to note because the pages were actually excised out of it and you can see it by the way that the pages are cut, right? The pages are literally cut out of a volume. And so that's how we know that it was in some type of volume originally and then removed. And so that's just kind of an interesting facet. But again, the stuff that I'm getting into, a lot of people may be going, well, who cares about any of that, right? But that's the type of stuff that Dan and I have to look at and say, how does this all work? You know, what exactly are we looking at here? And so um, those details aren't, you know, obscure minutia to us. They actually carry meaning to the overall interpretation of these volumes. Thanks for that clarification on uh, the pages that were cut. Yeah, because uh, they're they were cut with a ra uh, straight edge. Obviously, exactly. it's all crooked and it cuts through some of the characters and some of the English translation. Precisely, so kind of sloppy. But yeah. so we we have the we have the pages, but we don't have the book anymore. Right. Exactly. Anyway, so the point important point takeaway from this slide is that there's a two month gap. For Joseph Smith to think about the uh, what he's going to dictate, as far as the Book of Abraham, we he could look things up in books and things and uh, talk about it with other people and and certainly uh, dictating these Egyptian alphabets and grammar book. They they call it a Gale sometimes. Grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language uh, was a good place to think about these things. So uh, next, oh, next, next slide. slide, yeah. The next slide is kind of an overview of um, what we think is the 19th century sources for the Book of Abraham. And so the, fir the first three verses uh, right away talk about a rightful heir uh, by birth, that Abraham's a rightful heir by birth to the high priesthood. And this reflects on DNC 107, which was given. Uh, uh, just uh, added to and modified for the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants two months earlier. And so it gets reflected in the Book of Abraham. So he's already, he's, he's more or less citing his own previous work, you know. 
Right. And this was kind of a revelation, pardon the pun to me, when I realized that Doctrine and Covenants section 107, and you have the verses there, 40 through 57, where it delineates the different, uh, does it go all the way back to Adam and talk about the high priests and how yeah, the priesthood... Before, so two months before he gets the book of Abraham, he's dictating or adding to a previous revelation that dated to uh, November of 1831 that talked about Bishop uh, Partridge and the high president of the high priesthood, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, so two months prior to getting the book of Abraham, he's concerned with establishing a ordination lineage from Adam to uh, uh, Noah and uh, and Enoch, I guess you, you would say. He talks about the valley of Adam on Diamond and Adam coming and blessing his family, but all where all the high priests came. Though the problem is the, the Old Testament doesn't have any priesthood lineage uh, among the patriarchs. And um, so it would be something that would uh, not be in the Bible. And he's trying to establish the high priesthood through his own revelations. And then finally, in a text that he translates in the book of Abraham. So he's, he's this is a 19th century, DNC 107 is a 19th century source for the book of Abraham. And this right. is something that you won't get from Guillaume Milstein. <laughs> okay. They, they don't know about this stuff, as far as I know. Um, this was, it was very interesting to me that this is something that is obviously concerning Joseph Smith. Whether you think he's the author or not of Doctrine and Covenants, Section 107, it's something that's on his mind about this patriarchal priesthood. And by patriarchal, I mean a priesthood handed down by the patriarchs, father to son, etc. Yeah. in May of 1835. And then the very first three verses over there at the top left of the Book of Abraham, which is the very first thing that was translated, Yes, was Abraham is a rightful heir by birth to the high priesthood. And he says, I got it from the fathers. Right. Exactly. So you will see in our discussion uh, the motivations for all this. Okay. Um, so uh, then, then when he resumes uh, dictating the translation in November, it starts with verse 4. And 4 through 20 is about the attempted sacrifice of Abraham. And this is basically inspired from facsimile one, which we're going to discuss that also. Then uh, he gets into the founding of Egypt, uh, that uh, they're Hamites and they uh, start a patriarchal government, but it's unauthorized. And th this comes from part one of the Egyptian alphabet and the Gale, uh, except in this, in that, those is two sources that were dictated first, it's not speaking about Abraham. It's talking about Ketuman, Princess Ketuman and her parents and the founding of, and, and they live 800 years after Abraham. And they are basically the mummies that came with the papyri. Um, and that's what the Egyptian alphabet and, and grammar are about. They're, they're mostly about Ketuman and uh, some other documents that have nothing to do with the book of Abraham. So it's almost uh, like it's a provenance for the book of Abraham, isn't it? it yeah. 
And, and, and two, I, I should add that in the Egyptian alphabet, Ketuman almost becomes a title. Yeah. And as does Oneida or Oneidas, you know, as the case may be. And that's Oneidas originally. And that's Ketuman's dad, right? Correct. And and I they become carryovers into the actual Book of Abraham narrative where now they are alive during Abraham's day. And Oneida, it, at first the manuscript read Oneidas, and then it gets amended to Oneida. You know, he lives during that day. And I think that one of the three virgins that are killed, you know, that that's Ketuman, right? That's being killed. And because if you remember from the notebooks, she's only 25 when she dies, but it doesn't tell you how she died or anything like that. And so we'll get to the three virgins again a little bit later. So we've got more to talk about that. But but those are some thoughts. When you go through the Egyptian alphabet documents, Ketuman appears to be some type of title that explains that this is a young unmarried woman and so on, right? And right. so I think that that's probably what we're looking at. And that's why we get such confusion between who is Ketuman all the way through this. And I think that Dan is right. I think the initial Ketuman is actually one of the mummies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then yeah. Onidas is the other one. Right. Is the one that, yeah. Onidas... Right? Oh, yeah, well, that's what Lucy Smith said, remember? Precisely. Uh, she used to show the mummies and charge money for it. She would say, this is uh, Oneidas, the king, right here. Exactly. And the Book exactly. of Abraham came from the chest of that male mummy. Exactly. And and the Book of Joseph, or the Tal-Sherat Men Papyrus, came from the chest of one of the female mummies. Precisely, right. Yeah, so yep. that's what... That's basically what, what the first part of the uh, alphabets and the grammar are about, this family and the mummies. And when it gets developed in the grammar, it goes into more detail and actually talks about the female having a record. Right. Exactly. So that's what it's about. It's not about Abraham. Right. right. And when <laughs> you you're know? saying that, you're talking about the... the um, the uh, the translation documents the the grand the, the GAA the the alphabet yeah the the Gale and and the um, Egyptian the three alphabet, alphabet the three alphabets yeah. and then the three alphabets get expanded in the book which is right. the grammar grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language because grammar is added to the alphabets and then the right. alphabets are expanded in five degrees and as they expand you can see his ideas are developing towards mm -hmm. dictating the book of abraham so not not to throw you off but let me just make the passing observation that the confusion between tasher at men 
Is that the actual name? What, what What's the name that Joseph That's Smith that, came up? The, oh, the book of Joseph or the yep. record of Joseph. But Joseph's right. uh, princess. Joseph, the patriarch Joseph. I'm sorry. No, Joseph Smith's princess. What was her oh, name again? Katuman? Katuman. Okay. Tasha yeah. Min is actually the Egyptian right. name. But Katuman no. is the name that Joseph Smith came up with. No. Yes. No. The, the no. Katuman comes from an epitaph from... The papyrus of Amenhotep, which we don't have, but they copied into those two little notebooks called the Valuable Discovery Notebooks and the uh, uh, Egyptian Character Notebooks. And they copied it into there, and Joe Smith translated a portion that has the epitaph of Ketuman. That was one of the first things they did was to preserve the documents that were crumbling. And, uh, and it was the Amenhotep, who was a priest, and it was his Book of the Dead that they had a portion of. And that is where the passage comes from. So the first part of the alphabets that gets expanded in the grammar book has to do with Amenhotep. Nothing about you, not even the horror papyrus, you know, right. where, where Abraham supposedly uh, was translated from. But then there's a there's like three books of the dead, two books of the dead, one book of breathings. Right. And Dan, I'm afraid I've gotten you off in the weeds there. But I was just asking, is Ketuman is the name of the, the princess that Joseph Smith came up with to be the daughter of Oneida, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, and there's a confusion with Ketuman because in these uh the grammar and alphabet, Ketuman ends up existing like 800 years before Abraham or 800 years after, after Abraham after. as well. And then in the text, uh, there's an argument that she shows up and at least Oneida does during the life of Abraham. Correct. Right. Right. It's so, grand so, theory. so, so basically it's an evolution where in, in the valuable discovery documents, she and her father live, you know, hundreds of years after Abraham. But then in the Egyptian alphabet documents, all of a sudden those names become titles, right? They, they become yeah. meanings of like words. Pharaoh, like the name Pharaoh. Right? Exactly. They become words that have meaning. So by the time you get to the Abraham translation, now all of a sudden they're alive and well. Well, of course they are, because these are the titles of the king and the princess, right? And so, so that's that's kind of what I think is going on there, and why Oneidas, you know, changed to Oneida, ends up in the actual Book of Abraham proper. Okay, now having established that, let me just make what is now the unremarkable observation, which I took a whole long way to get around to which is that the confusion between the Princess Ketumans, right? Or possible confusion between the Princess Ketumans seems to be perhaps mirrored in the Book of Abraham with the confusion between the woman named Egyptus. Sure. Oh, the the whole thing with Egyptus is a whole nother conversation. Right. Is she the wife of Ham or is she his daughter? Uh, no, it, no. She originally it's Zepta. You know, the wife of Ham is named Zepta, then it becomes Jepta with a J, then Jepta with a G, then Jeptus, 
and then eventually Egypt does. That's the evolution through the manuscripts. In other words, it doesn't start out really cleanly and follow through. So what we end up with in the book of Abraham, in the final version, is her name is Egyptus. And her daughter's name is also Egyptus. Right? Yeah, that's and, one way of reading it. And, and, right. And, and even the daughter's name goes through multiple spellings of what the name actually sounds like. And so um, I think that that's really a, a kind of an interesting thing to understand, that this was not just a really super fluid process where everything was smooth all the way through. It was kind of chunky where, you know, they're, they're kind of figuring out some things as they go. And those names, like the wife of Ham, is a good example where they're trying to figure it out as they go along. And so, um, yeah, that, that's an interesting detail. But anyway, I digress. Yes. And we should probably go on to the next slide. <laughs> okay. So, uh, no, not on to the next slide. No. Oh, okay. Just further down. <laughs> oh, so, so basically, we're going to do okay. a show on this slide because we could. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. So, the founding of Egypt, <laughs> um, you, you, recall, you might recall that the Book of Abraham talks about uh, Egyptus uh, or the daughter of Ham discovering Egypt while Egypt was still underwater and founding her sons in it. And then the uh, Pharaoh, her son, establishes an illegitimate patriarchal government because he doesn't have the correct authority because he's not the firstborn. Anyway, so that is talking about Ketumen and, and their history going back to the beginning of Egypt. Well, that gets dropped in to the Book of Abraham while well, Justice Smith's dictating the Book of Abraham. That whole idea gets dropped in. But that is a 19th century source for the Book of Abraham. So that's why I list it. The next phase and, is... And can, can I just make one quick comment? Because I think that this is really important and has been so controversial over the years. And that is, were the descendants of Ham actually denied the priesthood per se? And I've made the argument that no, they, they weren't. What they were denied was the patriarchal priesthood, right? Yes. So they could hold other, you know, whatever, Melchizedek, whatever, right? They could hold other priesthoods, but it's the patriarchal priesthood that they're being denied. And for one thing, the reason why is because their authority is coming through a matrilineal line. It's coming through their mother and not through their father, right? Because it's their mother back to Ham. 
And so I think that that's a I, I that's how I see that that Joseph Smith was comfortable in having you know descendants of you know slaves like were brought over yeah, exactly being holding the priesthood yeah because they weren't being restricted from that priesthood it was from the patriarchal priesthood that they couldn't hold and so that's a very different interpretation and it's not until after joseph smith's de death the earliest reference i found i believe is from 1845 from the council of 50 minutes where one of the um apostles refers to the book of abraham as restricting african americans from holding the priesthood and that's as far as i know that is the first time that anyone is is using that as a blanket argument for why they can't hold the priesthood because joseph smith had been giving it to uh african americans all along so anyway well the motivation yeah. briefly the motivation behind this is that it's coming in 1835 and he's uh predicted that Zion will be restored in on the 11th of September, 1836. And this is to say that the uh, Blacks will not have any leadership positions in that patriarchal government that right. Zion will uh, be administered by. And that was to placate the people in Jackson County. Yeah. The that's, thing that's my interpretation anyway. And it's a fascinating one because it puts it in its historical context. And we know that Joseph Smith, the Saints had been kicked out of Jackson County in 1833. And it was a very, very difficult situation. Yeah. And a lot of it was the concerns of the Missourians about the abolitionist tendencies of Northerners coming down there. And so this is sort of like a sop to try and um, make them feel better and more kindly toward the Latter-day Saints so they could, they could maybe get back there to Jackson County because this is the this is 1835 1834 was when they tried to take it by force right yeah. the Zion's camp yeah exactly yeah. we'll Which be getting work. to that we'll be getting to that okay uh, okay so um the next thing is that um uh, chapter 2 is essentially an inspired revision of Genesis chapters 11 and 12. We know Joe Smith, he spent three years uh, doing a re inspired revision of the whole Bible. And so he's quite adept at uh, revising biblical, uh, you know, texts according to his desires. And so basically what we're going to get, in, in, and it's going to be very interesting, but in chapter two, part of chapter two, uh, we'll be getting Abraham flees to from Ur in Babylon to Haran and then to Egypt to escape the famine. Then, then we have uh, chapter three is Abraham's vision of the cosmos and premortal intelligences, which basically comes from the alphabet and grammar where he has a detailed uh, 
description of the cosmos of 15 moving, 15 uh, uh, fixed planets. And we'll talk about that later, too. Uh, he also has dictated Moses, chapter 4, um, that talks about the preexistence and the, you know, uh, Satan and his followers being cast down. Then uh, it also reflects his Hebrew lessons, has Hebrew words in there that, that he only learned in 1836. So um, this is the part that is in Nauvoo, of course. Uh, then it also reflects natural theology. Uh, people particularly talk about Thomas Dick's philosophy. And natural theologians in the 19th century were um, uh, theologians that tried to harmonize theology with uh, known science at the time, uh, which is outdated now, which makes uh, just Smith's reflections of the, the uh, of natural theology of the, that time look a little, uh, <laughs> you know, out of date. Um, mm -hmm. Which is um, the idea that there's large planets that revolve not just our solar system, but the whole solar system and the whole Milky Way revolves around other Milky Way type things. And all of those revolve around God's throne, the center of light. Well, that makes, and this is the peculiar thing about the Joseph Smith's cosmology here, is that he talks about the sun as both a fixed planet and a moving planet. And planet, he calls it a planet, first of all, which coincides with people in 19th century believing the sun was inhabited. They didn't know anything about nuclear fission and all that kind of stuff. And so the sun's inhabited, all the planets are inhabited in the 19th century theology of the, the natural theologians. And everything revolves around each other so that the sun does move. When it, it's stationary in our system, but in the larger system, it's moving. So, and that reflects... Uh, the 19th century thing, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in conjunction with facsimile too. And the last part, chapters four and five, of course, are basically an inspired revision of, of Genesis chapter one and two, the creation story, with some of his Hebrew lessons thrown in for good measure. So, but we are not going to talk about that because everybody basically under, understands that that's a 19th century uh, version of um, uh, the uh, Genesis, a revision of Genesis. So, okay, next slide. <laughs> mm, finally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we're, I look at the Book of Abraham as a sort of pseudepigrapha, which uh, this is Bart Ehrman. These are his two major books on pseudepigrapha. The one on the right is the New Testament pseudepigrapha. I think there's actually books in the New Testament that are not written by the people that have the names attached to them, that they're believed to be have been written by others for various reasons. The one on the left is, uh, you know, like the Apocalypse of Abraham. There's all there's a there's a pseudepigraphic writing already of Abraham, and uh, you know Maccabees and some other. The Book of Enoch, these are all books that were written by, not by Enoch, <laughs> by someone else that wanted to do import doctrines into the uh, Christian community and used uh, Enoch's authority to do it. And that's what I think Joseph Smith's doing. 
So um, the quote here, so, so pseudepigrapha is biblical literature, a work affecting biblical style and usually spurious attribution uh, to biblical a biblical character. So in the motivation, uh, uh, Bart Ehrman tells us, uh, was to give their own religious views. These authors, the pseudonymous authors, their own religious views, often deemed heretical by the dominant group of believers, respectability and authority that otherwise would not be given an obscure author. So this is where I say that in writing the Book of Mormon even, Joseph Smith adopted a pseudonymous uh, pseudepigraphical style because no one would have bought a theological book written by a money-digging farmer. <laughs> so uh, so he got authority and he was able to uh, get his ideas into the Christian community that way. Any comments? Not for me. Brent? Um, no, no, I'm good. I, I would have a few comments, but but I think it would be good to progress along. Otherwise, we're going to be here for okay. five hours. <laughs> so. Thank you, Thank you Brent. Yeah, okay. it looks like it looks like Doctor Gee has joined us as well. Doctor Gee, yeah. did you have anything you wanted to say about this? Yeah, I've I've kept him muted. I keep kicking him out, but he just keeps showing up. So uh, like he, he doesn't baby. have anything to add. He's just watching and and just checking this out. Okay, okay. Well, uh, that's cool. Continue, okay. Mr. Vogel. Okay, so uh, the first three verses dictated in July of 1835, the first month that he has these papyri, the very uh, first three verses talk about this high priesthood we mentioned. This is uh, in the, the highlighted part is the most important. I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. It was conferred upon me from the fathers. It came down from the fathers from the beginning of time, yea, even the beginning or before the foundation of the earth down to the present time, even the right of the firstborn or the first man who is Adam or first father through the fathers unto me. Okay, so the first three verses prove the book of Abraham is not an ancient book. Okay, and, and they claim that there was a chain of ordinations to the high priesthood from Adam to Abraham is fiction and is based on a misinterpretation of Hebrews chapter 7 that talks about Jesus being the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it's a very involved thing, but so we're not going to discuss it here, but it's th this is one of the things that's anachronistic that, it, you know, it's like a red flag pointing to the book of Abraham being a modern production and to support Joseph Smith's previous innovations. And that's what we're going to discuss next. So, And, and then by, by anachronistic, yes. you mean mentioning Abraham as being a high priest uh, as opposed to okay. Aaron, Moses' brother, being the first high priest? Exactly. Well, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Aaron being the high priest over the other priests. And uh, we're going to see that uh, a lot of Mormons... In Joseph Smith's day, a lot of his followers didn't exactly find that credible. That because they had the traditional view of uh, Hebrews seven, and they and they some of them were very ranking Mormons like David Whitmer, David Whitmer. John Whitmer, the high, the whole presidency basically in Missouri 
didn't quite buy this high priesthood. And when Joseph Smith introduced it, he had trouble. Um, so the, the next slide will show our, and so we're going to kind of briefly go through the development of priesthood, something that John Gian and Carrie Milstein probably can't do. But uh, so by the way, Dan, Dan, yeah. do you think that the trouble that Joseph Smith had introducing the idea of a high priesthood played into why it was that he thought it was important to instantiate that doctrine in a new book of scripture in the book of Abraham? Yes, that's exactly it. He wanted ancient authority. They, they, a lot of Joseph Smith's followers questioned some of his revelations. I mean, one, one person said uh, when they were being criticized of being a follower of Joseph Smith, they said, well, we only follow him insofar as his revelations coincide with the scriptures, meaning the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And um, so they weren't like uh, current Mormons who weren't allowed to question anything. Uh, they didn't have that rule down really well back then. So well, these, these next two slides that you have about the trajectory yes. of Joseph Smith's priesthood innovations, yes. I think is absolutely fascinating because it talks about the different things he did with the priesthood and places it chronologically and contextually in such a way as to make absolute sense to me in a way it never had before. Well, thank you. And I hope it, it works on everybody else too, but let's see what it says. Uh, so June, 1831, Joseph Smith introduces the high priesthood at a church conference in Kirtland. And some of the elders questioned the propriety of this new priesthood. And John Corll, who was a, a church historian uh, wrote a history of the church uh, in 1839. He mentioned that it took a while to convince some of these uh, brethren that the high priesthood was a legitimate thing to have um, and to ordain people to the high priesthood. Then uh, in July and August 1831, Joseph Smith visited Missouri, during which he had a jurisdictional dispute with Bishop Edward Partridge. Now, you know, that probably doesn't happen nowadays anymore. But Joseph Smith uh, was confronted by Bishop Partridge and said, I'm the bishop here. Why are you trying to order people around and, you know, tell us what land to buy or not to buy? And um, so uh, he was hi highly criticized. And it's a long story. And if you want to read about it, my biography will be coming out next year that talks all about this stuff. So. On the 11th, he went back to uh, Ohio, and on the 11th of November, 1831, he dictated a revelation appointing himself as president of the high priesthood over the whole church, specifically mentioning its superiority over the office of bishop, <laughs> you know, that the bishop is not equal to it, it says. So uh, then on the 25th of January, 1832, he, he was ordained as president of the high priesthood by Sidney Reagan at a conference in Amherst, Ohio. Following which, on the 26th of April, 1832, uh, he was sustained as president of the high priesthood in Missouri. So he has all the people in Missouri, all the people questioning him, uh, sustain him as president of the high priesthood. The Missouri leaders later, they said, okay, they shook hands and they went on and went back to Ohio. But soon after these, uh, all these letters start coming from Missouri calling him, uh, you know, 
like uh, dictatorial and uh, uh, the, the, what the actual wording of one of them was accusing Brother Joseph in a rather indirect way of seeking after monarchical power and authority. And so they, they were resisting this. Hey, now all of a sudden he's president of the high priesthood. He's like rose above all of us. And they didn't like that. They wanted the eldership to be uh, more egalitarian. Um, then in September 1832, Joseph Smith dictated Revelation, which is now DNC 84, which claimed that the high priesthood was handed down to Moses through a chain of ordinations back to Adam, about which the Bible is silent. So the Bible says nothing about any of this stuff. But he has a revelation. Here's his, here's his lineage of priesthood, a chain of ordinations. Um, so he's establishing this priesthood, high priesthood, in ancient times. But it's through his own revelations. Um, in May, May to, to July 1834, Joe Smith led a quasi military expedition, more than 200 Mormons to Missouri in an unsuccessful effort to return the saints to the land, their lands in Jackson County. When he got back to Ohio, uh, he experienced a fallout from the failure of his leadership. And, and he was, it, uh, his leadership was questioned in both Ohio and Missouri. So um, he's in trouble. Uh, his charisma is being challenged. His charismatic authority and leadership is being challenged. So, Maven, can you give us the next slide, please? Thank you. Uh, in September of 1834, in a letter to W.W. Phelps in Missouri, Oliver Cowdery, with Smith's help, wrote the first account of his and Smith's ordination to an, uh, by an unnamed angel in May 1829, which was published in the Messenger Advocate the following month. This dramatically changed the concept of authority and made it more difficult to break away from the chain of ordinations back to an undisputed source of authority. So basically, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery got together and um, decided they would tell this story, and Cowdery would be a witness, a second witness. It wouldn't be just Joseph Smith, that they were ordained by an angel. So it's harder, it's easy to break away if the, if the authority is charismatic. Anybody can be charismatic and get revelations and break away. Well, once you establish this chain of authority, it makes it harder to break away. You now have to justify what your new authority. Dan, looking at this retrospectively, from where yeah. we are now, and when I joined the church and took the missionary discussions, it's pretty easy to identify that this would have been John the Baptist coming in May of 1829 to give the Aaronic priesthood. But is this the first mention of an angel coming to give authority yeah. to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery? It's as late as September of 1834, more yeah. than five years after the alleged date had happened. Yep. And, and, and this is exactly why David Whitmer, the president of the Missouri church, <laughs> he should know. Said he didn't, he didn't hear anything about it until 1834 or five, and 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 William E. McClellan said the same thing, and John Whitmer said the same thing. It was a, this was a total surprise to them. And at this point, they, they've been operating, baptizing, ordaining, and doing all the church functions, not knowing where the priesthood came from. I mean, that's remarkable. 
It is. And at this point, it's just an unnamed angel. It has yet to yes. be identified as John the Baptist. And there's no mention of Peter, James, and John in a separate ordination not, yet. Not yet. Not yet. So, so Oliver Cowdery publishes this, or he publishes it, but he also writes it to, instead of Joseph Smith writing it, right? Cowdery writes it with Joseph Smith's help, he says, and sends it off to Missouri. So on the 5th of December... 1834, just a few months later, Oliver Cowdery is ordained as assistant president or co-president of the church by Sidney Rigdon. This shot him up above Sidney Rigdon and Frederick G. Williams, who were Joseph Smith's uh, uh, counselors uh, in, the, in the presidency of the high priesthood. This shot Cowdery up over everybody right next to Joseph Smith. Because there is a first presidency at this time. Well, uh, they actually a term comes later, actually, but it's the presidency of the high priesthood. Still. Okay, and that yeah. exists at this time, the presidency, and, and that now, turns into the first presidency. Yeah, and Oliver Cowdery, in, within that context, is made a co-president with Joseph yeah. Smith, mm -hmm. and Joseph Smith still has his two counselors, one of whom is Sidney Rigdon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got it, and Frederick G. Williams. Do you think that's, that's right. a do you think that's a payoff of at all to Oliver Cowdery? Yes, I do. <laughs> How do you mean? Well, so now that they both were ordained by the angel, because that what didn't happen before. Right. Now they're they're now both ordained. Now first and second elder becomes kind of a different meaning. <laughs> you know, it kind of makes Cowdery equal. So. Um, then on the 6th, Joseph Smith Sr. is ordained as the first patriarch of the church. By the way, for those listening in audio, that's 6th of December, 1834. Sorry, Dan, go ahead. Oh, thank you. That's okay. Uh, the following February, 1835, the Quorum of Twelve Apostles and the Quorum of Seventy are organized. And this was uh, like a reward for those who went to Zion and failed in their mission. This is uh, kind of a reward. Now, because Charisma has reached a crisis point with the failure of, in Jackson County, Missouri, Joseph Smith organizes a hierarchy with more earnestness. And uh, it then becomes, when, when prophecy fails, it, you start focusing on kingdom building. And that's what he's doing. That's part of one of one of his reactions to pull him in to reward him to make him more attached to the organization, so that it's less likely for them to leave or to apostatize or to break off and start their own church. Um, then, in uh, from March to May 1835, we mentioned this already. Joseph Smith received revelation, uh, revised, excuse me, revised revelations for publication adding references about priesthood to previous revelations. He more or less uh, added to previous revelations things that came later. So these things that he adds are anachronistic because they could not have happened in the time frame in which he has placed them. So to in 1830 Revelation, which is DNC 27, he added references to his and Cowdery's ordination by John the Baptist. And this is where he names them, John the Baptist. And Peter, James, and John. He mentions Peter, James, and John 
who delivered the keys of the apostleship. Okay, not the Melchizedek priesthood. The Melchizedek priesthood is still June, the June introduction of the high priesthood. And that's June of 1831, correct? June 1831. And that's that's the that's the introduction or the revelation of the high priesthood. Um, but Peter, James, and John restored the apostleship, which Cowdery failed to mention when he organized the 12 apostles. So I conclude that the Peter, James, and John story was created after the apostles were organized as a justification for the keys that they now held. Then to an 1831 revelation, DNC 107, that we talked about before, he added instructions on priesthood, which mentioned that it was the duty of the 12 to ordain patriarchs and included an ordination lineage of the high priesthood and patriarchal priesthood from Adam to Noah, which he said was recorded in the book of Enoch to be testified of in due time. So this is uh, March to May, somewhere in there, he revised these. And he mentioned that this this was to be proven, this, this uh, priesthood lineage is to be proven in the book of Enoch, testified in due time. But then a few months later, the papyri fall into his lap. <laughs> and he uses those to do what he wanted to do. Uh, uh, if he was going to dictate a pseudepigraphic book of Enoch, it wouldn't be any better than, you know, his revelations, really. But now he has an actual text that he can weld his uh, new ideas to, which so is almost so almost you, what he had. He had laid the groundwork for doing in a future book of Enoch. Yeah. He ends up doing with the book of Abraham because of the papyrus. Yeah. And this is exactly what pseudepigraphists did in ancient times. Um, so then the next slide, please, Maven. <laughs> Buffering. Okay. This is really uh, interesting stuff here. Yeah, this this part here is a, like to me when I learned about this is mind blowing. <laughs> you know, right, Brent? Yeah. Um, this is where they also about in 1834 started a patriarchal blessing book, where Joseph Smith Senior uh, blessings were recorded in, and Joseph Smith's blessings were also recorded in this by Oliver Cowdery. And while they were recording these new, you know, these, these patriarchal blessings into this book, they were revising these just the same way they were revising the revelations. So they're, they're reconceptualizing the whole priesthood. And the book of Abraham is all tied into this whole large project um, of rewriting history, um, consolidating authority and power in Joseph Smith, really, um, and Oliver Cowdery. So, and so now Oliver Cowdery now takes this uh, story that apparently he and Joseph Smith have come up with about being ordained by an unnamed angel and yeah. now says that this is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy by Joseph. Right. So, And, and keep in mind, too, that Oliver Cowdery is already referring to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ in June of 1829, right? And and I... A charismatic I, apostle. 
Yeah, yeah, that that's his his revelation on organizing the church. But but the concept of authority that was coming from the Book of Mormon was basically the priesthood of the believer. And so, for example, when Alma, you know, baptizes himself, right? And Helaman. Yeah. The Spirit of God comes upon him. And he baptizes himself because now he has the authority to do it. He doesn't need anybody to ordain him to anything. Right, and, and this so, is what. So, so it's a very different model back then. Yes, and I think that that's where Calvary is coming from. When he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he means that he's a special witness of Jesus Christ, along with Joseph Smith. Yes, that, that's the early concept that is now being transformed. Yep. Uh, into more um i would say a chain of ordinations rather than being a spirit filled and having the authority through the spirit being right. possessed and having the spirit yeah the, uh, the apostolic was- charge changed at some point didn't it yes exactly and i was just um, going to say to brent that that's of course one of the chestnuts in the book of mormon which is where did alma get his priesthood authority and then a lot right. of speculation occurs generally in the commentaries in order to make Alma receive his priesthood by someone else who had the priesthood. that, In other words, he was ordained at some point, even though it's not written in the Book of Mormon, even though the Book of Mormon doesn't seem to think that's important. But the right. reason why is, of course, because what we're doing now, or what those people who write those commentaries are doing, is they are taking a later concept of ordination to the priesthood that came about years after the Book of Mormon came forth, or was dictated in 1829, and trying to read that back into the Book of Mormon, when the Book of Mormon actually is not talking about any priesthood in that way, but simply a priesthood through believing and through being commissioned by the Holy Ghost, you you can baptize. It's it's presentism well, in the classical sense, right? They're imposing their ideas from a modern time back onto something earlier. And the fact is, is during that time, ministers and so on and other lay folk who who worked in in the ministry they got their authority from the holy ghost it wasn't through the laying on of hands you know sometimes they would be commissioned by a pastor or or a preacher or someone else but that wasn't always the case and and so that's what we're seeing in the case of Alma is that he is literally receiving the priesthood and authority I use priesthood lightly the authority from God to perform this act because he has essentially what I would call the priesthood of the believers and that's all it took all right. So the Oliver Cowdery writes in the blessing book, and this is where we're going to get the idea that what why how they are going to use the papyri to establish their recent developments in priesthood. 
So Cowdery writes, therefore, we repaired to the woods, even as our father Joseph said we should, that is to the bush, and called upon the name of the Lord. And then they get ordained by that angel. Um, the next quote below that uh, is a rewrite of a blessing Oliver Cowdery received from Joseph Smith in 1833. And so he's rewriting it and he adds this in 1835. These blessings shall come upon him, Oliver, according to the blessings of the prophecy of Joseph in ancient days, which he said should come upon the seer in the last days and the scribe who should sit with him. And that should be ordained with him by the hands of the angel in the bush. And it goes on and it mentions it. It doesn't mention by name, but alludes to apostles that were in the days of uh, Messiah. Uh, coming. And then it ends by saying that, the, you know, thus saith he, even Joseph of old. So we have uh, that Dalbert Cowder is referring to the Tasher Min Papyrus, which they associated with the uh, Joseph of old. And they're going to use that to establish a, another part of their priesthood, recent priesthood innovations. And there, Joseph Smith is dictating over here the first three verses of the book of Abraham, talking about the high priesthood, which establishes uh, the, the presidency of the high priesthood, ultimately, which both of them now belong to. So they're now at the head of the church. And the, the other, the very bottom part, the patriarchal blessing book compared to Abraham verse two, is to show that he even borrows some of the wording from uh, the book of Abraham, you know, verse two in his patriarchal blessing book. So that's on his mind as he's talking about this Joseph of old. So I'm, I'm done with this if everybody else is. I was just yeah. going to say, it's also, it's also fascinating to me that Joseph Smith has already opened up the door on this idea of prophecies by Joseph of old, extra biblical prophecies. Yes. In Second uh, Nephi chapter three. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Although right. that part doesn't mention anything about an angel or a bush. No, he just prophesies about Joseph. Right. And Joseph is named after his father, Joseph. Yeah. And so on, right? Every Everybody has the name Joseph. So, yeah. Yeah, pretty precise prophecy from way earliest prophecy ever, practically, that we right. have. <laughs> <laughs> Fools mock, but they so shall mourn man. Oh, well, right. the prophecy is so accurate, yet the Book of Mormon can't see beyond Joseph Smith's day very clearly. Um, right. So, uh, retroactive prophecy is so clear. Um, so yeah. here we have facsimile one, which is really and Joseph Smith adding the knife to to uh, Anubis's hand. Um, can, can I ask a question here really quick, though? This is away from what you're talking about, but I told RFM I needed to ask this tonight. There's the carving with Anubis where it looks like they carved the nose off. Yeah. Do we know for sure there was a nose there and it was carved off? Or is it is it almost is it highly it likely? Like it. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It uh, does. To me, it's another like, dead giveaway. It's a yeah, Paul, and it seems Paul Osborne. Hello, Paul Osborne. He's he's been the one that uh, I think I don't know, maybe he did discover it. I wonder um, if we should have him on at some point and have that conversation because yeah. 
it seems like a very yeah. obvious moment where Joseph seems to have gone like, uh oh, I think I know what this figure is. It's in the other other document, and I need to alter this so it doesn't look like a match. Yeah, this is facsimile three. Yeah. Right, facsimile three. It's what was uh, almost doubtless Anubis, but ends up being a strange little black figure with a pinhead, and it looks like a spike in his head. Yeah. And what Paul Ors Osborne uh, suggests is that this is Anubis. The blackness is from his black fur, and um, that his snout was cut out of the lead printing plate that had already been prepared with the yeah. snout because Anubis being a jackal has a nice snout and yeah. that it now had to be changed in order to make it look like a slave is who it ends up being identified by Joseph. So they take the snout off and it ends up making a very strange looking little figure there who gets identified as the slave. And I can't remember. Is that what's, what's the name of the slave? Do you remember? Uh, uh, oh, geez. Is it like, it's not only Bish cause that's no, it's right on the tip of my tongue uh sorry pop quiz yeah um okay the the one thing that i would want to know more about with that is that why leave the jackal ears and so um on top of the head and that doesn't seem right to me so i think i think that the the papyrus could well have been damaged as well and and not necessarily a direct manipulation um of of what we're looking at and um this know, print this, yeah. this would be the print plate and correct what looks to me and looks to most others who have looked at this is that this is Anubis and it's got, right? Is this Anubis? Is that what I'm saying? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yes. And and this has the, it would have had the beak on it if it was the Anubis character. That's his ear. That's his ear. And, and it looks like uh, the beak there, you can see the marks there where it was something what was done in a specific shape that seems to indicate the beak. And you can kind of see where it's Jackal broken off. It. It's a snout. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can see that it's yeah. broken off. It's snout. Yeah. The, 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 the problem with, with that with that argument is that the headdress is missing, right? And that's that's what I'm looking for is the headdress on the back of the head because yeah. that's what's in facsimile number one. And so that's what suggests to me that that papyrus was damaged already because there's no reason for them to have left that off. They don't leave it off in facsimile number one, right? And and so I'm not really sure why it would have been done that way. And we know that these uh, papyrus, you know, fragments, for lack of a better term, because not all of them remain contiguous to each other, obviously and so um the question is you know were the others not damaged as well because we know facsimile number one is damaged and that's part of the same scroll and each of the continue contiguous uh papyri fragments that follow after it 
also contain obviously the same damage all the way through and so that would be my question because you know we're not talking about facsimile number three very far from facsimile number one and that would make far more sense to me that he would look at a character like this that had been damaged and go oh he's he's black and he's a slave right yeah so so i i mean that that's where i i would want to study that more yeah before i come up with any firm conclusion and saying yeah we got this right so yeah. it's, it's anubis right absolutely and anubis has a snout right exactly so if it if, if, if it was damaged it wouldn't have been damaged in the front it would have been damaged in the back and so your headdress would be missing right yeah and again it looks as though that snout was that was there i mean it looks like on that print plate that's that all i can say it, i don't know for sure snout. but it appears that way and then right. the... I, I feel like I would want to actually examine the plate and and see it for myself because yeah. when you're when you're dealing with images, I'm telling you right now that you don't know exactly always what you're looking at, the way the light hits it, everything else. I would just want to see more of it because whatever happened assuming it was a snout right that's not what ends up in the final version which would have been done in very close proximity to that thing being created and so yeah, and I, th I think that's the argument by the way brent is that joseph noticed suddenly that this figure looked like anubis elsewhere and he went through the effort to knock that snout off so that way he wouldn't get caught having a different figure in the in the document right i don't think he knows who anubis is no 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 he wouldn't right. but he would know that he's giving the same character in two different documents different roles unless it's damaged in document in facsimile one and i don't right. know that, i think we're yeah and we're getting off track so we can we yeah, can back yeah, away from this. My hey, idea that's, is that's Joseph Smith has a... is that we could have like literally three or four podcasts just on this topic. Right. And with Dan's slides, easily three or four podcasts on well, the, this, the purpose this of the slides is to keep us on track. Yes, yeah, I gotta come in I just, here. I okay. need to ask so here we go. This okay, we need to look at 10, 10, not this nice, one. Guys. I gotta correct myself. I uh, I was saying Oli Blish. Okay, but of thank course, you. Oli Blish is a celestial body. I got it goofed up. The name of the slave is Olimla. Okay, thank you, thank you. All right, that's important to know. Okay, so when Joseph Smith he encounters these papyri, he encounters them as a Bible believer, and he tries to take uh, images in the Bible and and use them for interpreting the papyri so and we have this one example here is that if he's lo looking at facsimile one and in the bible there's only maybe uh joseph and abraham to choose from besides moses 
So he picks for this, he sees, he looks at that and says that this is Abraham being uh, sacrificed on the altar by a, a priest of Pharaoh. Well, it re reminds him of the Abraham trying to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, uh, with a knife in Genesis 22. So I say, my argument is that it's just a simple connection to make here, uh, except uh, the apologists want to connect it with some ancient uh, story about Abraham being sacrificed. The only problem is, is that the ancient stories aren't so ancient, but um, they associate it with Abraham being burned in, in uh, Nimrod's furnace. And another problem to that is that Abraham and Nimrod were not contemporaries. You know, Nimrod came much earlier than Abraham, yet the traditions persist. And Milstein has, says, um, uh, the priest and his supporters most likely plan first to strike Abraham with a knife and then burn him. So he's trying to blend the two traditions, you know, the facsimile one, one here with the Islamic tradition. It's also the Jewish traditions. And, uh, but the burning, the problem with that is that Abraham gets thrown into the fire and he comes out. So he wasn't put to death with a knife first. So uh, right, and there was no knife involved at all. Right? No, he's just tossed in the fire. Right. And so here's what I see. Uh, Carrie, and he walks around. Here. Yeah, it's just it's a replication of the three Hebrew children that we read about in Daniel, where they get thrown into the fire for refusing to worship the idols of King Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. And then they are saved by an angel or one who is like unto the son of God, as it's in the King James Version. And they're just walking around having a great time. And finally they come out and not even the, the their clothes are singed. They've been so completely preserved by the power of God. So this is what happens in these ancient legends, which we'll get to in a second, and which Adam Clark refers to there in his Holy Bible commentary, which you have a reference to, about this story about Abraham, which basically mirrors the same kind of story, except instead of three Hebrew children, it's Abraham who's getting thrown into the furnace, not by Nebuchadnezzar, but by Nimrod, who was also an ancient Babylonian ruler, although Nimrod is in the Bible around the time of the Tower of Babel, and uh, Abraham quite a bit later than that. That's what you're talking about. They're not being contemporaries. So what I see here, though, is that the apologists want to link the attempted sacrifice in the book of Abraham by a knife by a priest of Pharaoh with the ancient legend of the attempted sacrifice of Abraham, even though it doesn't mention anything about a knife, it's completely about a fire preservation in the furnace. And so then you've got Kerry Mulstein wanting to have it both ways and just making stuff up here where, yes. he's, where you have him quoting from his new book. Let's talk about the book of Abraham, page 87. That's let's right. talk about it. And let's talk about what's in the book of Abraham and what's not in the book of Abraham and what Kerry Mulstein really, really wishes were in the book of Abraham because it would match his ancient legend better. He yeah. says the priest and his supporters most likely planned to first strike <laughs> Abraham with a knife because yeah. that's what we have in Abraham one and then burn him. 
which has nothing to do with Abraham one, but everything to do with this legend. Yeah. And right. that Adam Clark Bible commentary. Hey, Bill, you there? Yep, I'm here. Can you read that upper right thing? Because this is something that was contemporary to Joseph Smith. And even though the apologists want to keep saying Joseph Smith had no way of knowing about this legend, right. about the attempted sacrifice of Abraham, even though it's by burning in Babylon by Nimrod. Yet we find it over and over again in sources that were contemporary with Joseph Smith. It is an ancient legend, but it's been reproduced and was in wide circulation in Joseph Smith's day. Can you read that from Adam Clark, Bill? Yeah, yeah. I just want to say something first, which yeah. is apologists make the argument that when dealing with these translation texts, we have no evidence by the people who acted as scribes that Joseph had any other material with them. But that apologetic response doesn't work because the inspired Bible translation we know was heavily plagiarized from Adam Clark's commentary, and the scribes of that also didn't connect the dots and say there was any other document being used. So once you have in one translation work uh, another document being used and none of the scribes talking about it and saying it out loud, it opens up the space that that could be happening with all of the translation, any and or all of the translation productions. Now, Adam Clark commented that the furnace was an ancient mode of punishment among the Chaldeans. If we may credit the, that the tradition that Abram was cast into such a fire by this idolatrous people because he would not worship their gods, Adam Clark, the Holy Bible, SV Dan 3.6. And by the way, it does say because he would not worship their and idols. Idols, sorry. So, yes. That's okay. So, so I, I need to add something here. And that is that um, there was an essay that was written by Andrew Hedges. And the title of it was something to the effect um a wanderer in a strange land, Abraham in America, 1800 to 1850. Now I'm going by memory, so don't fault me if I'm wrong. And he says that he went through, you know, different commentaries and all these 19th century sources. And, and he found literally, you know, almost no data about Abraham from this area, these traditions from this era, nothing. And the fact is, is that he cites Matthew Henry's commentary. He cites Adam Clark's commentary. We already have one up here from Daniel, right? From Adam Clark. And Matthew Henry also cites the tradition in his commentary on Daniel 3 and on Genesis 15. And Adam Clark does it on Ecclesiastes uh, 14. He does it on 2 Chronicles 2.8. He does it on the Targum or Chaldean uh, paraphrase of the Song of Solomon for chapter 7. He does it in Isaiah 30. And as I said, Daniel 3. 
So these are the very sources that Andrew Hedges was analyzing, saying that Joseph Smith could not have had access to any of these traditions from the early 19th century because he had already looked at these sources. And yet they're right in the sources that he was analyzing. And, and that is um, a corner that apologists have backed themselves into time and time again, saying Joseph Smith could not have known this. It's like the, the whole thing with um, uh, Hugh Nibley saying that there's no one that could have known about this tradition of Noah's uh, light in the ark coming from shining stones. No one could have known about that. Well, Adam Clark talks about it right in his commentary on the Noah narrative. And so it, that's, you know, a corner I have seen them backed into time and again I don't know why they do it. It's like the crocodile in Egypt. Oh my gosh. Can you believe that Joseph Smith identified it with the Pharaoh of, er of Egypt? So did all the commentators of the time. That's and so I, I just honestly don't understand that. Why they constantly back themselves into that no-win corner. And um, and this is a classic example. And we've got more sources to come. Yes, and the point here is that uh, we don't think Joseph Smith used this for the Book of Abraham. Of like course not. Right. But we're using these sources to show that their apologetic and their use of uh, ancient sources uh, is not legitimate. In fact, the way that I would frame it, Dan, is that we're dealing with, we're not dealing with literary dependency, but in some cases, we may be dealing with cultural dependency. And that's where something that existed in the culture, that Joseph Smith may have no clue of where it's coming from, right? It, his scribes could tell him about it, for all we know. and Or they may not have. He may have just got it straight from the story of Isaac and his imagination and everything else. But, but my point is that um, we need to distinguish really clearly between what we consider literary dependency and what we consider more of a, a cultural influence. I don't even want to call it a dependency in this case. But um, in, in fact, it, it, here's, here's an example. We, we've got uh, both Matthew Henry and Adam Clark refer to, you know, the attempted execution of Abraham by throwing him in the furnace and the co their commentaries on Daniel 3, right? Which is about the three young children 
that are going to be thrown into the fire. Well, what do we have in the book of Abraham? Three virgins are executed for doing the exact same three, this the exact same thing that those three young children do, and that is they refuse to worship the idols. And so the three virgins are executed in the book of Abraham, just like they are attempted to in the book of Daniel. And so I, I don't think that we can just... It's not by burning. Right, of course not. Of course on the not. same altar. It says exactly. on the same Exactly, exactly. Because it's going to be another Isaac recreation, right? But now, just like because he's playing off of what's in facsimile number one, and so we're going to see a recreation of that where we have, you know, Abraham and the attempted execution on him. But then we actually have the execution of the three virgins for, again, refusing to worship the idols. And I think that those are things that we need to look at. Are they coincidence? Maybe, but we can't discard them and say that we can't look at these things. I think that's really interesting, Brent. Can I bring up one thing just sort of push back on something you said? Sure. And it's not so much pushback as I understand that there is no requirement uh, that we show any particular dependency that Joseph Smith may have used from any particular source for this knowledge about uh, the attempted sacrifice of Abraham, though it was, of course, by fire and not by knife in the legend. But I am going to say that you've already listed off a number of different places where Adam Clark brings up this tradition in his Bible commentary. And it does seem clear that between 1830, which I think is when the translation, the inspired translation of the Bible commenced through 1833 or so, that Joseph Smith worked his way through the Bible and probably with Adam Clark's Bible commentary, thus accounting for so much dependence on it and apparent borrowings from it. And if that is the case, then it would seem to me almost inevitable that during that process, he would have come across at least one, if not more, of these mentions by Adam Clark in the same commentary he's referencing to this attempted sacrifice of Abraham in Babylon. What do you think? Yeah, well, well, I, I, I think, I think that uh, when I when I look at all of this, I think that it could very well be likely that he could have just as easily got information like this from one of his scribes who were more well-read than he was, right? Like Oliver Cowdery, who we know is quoting um, Josephus and in interpreting some of the uh, papyri. And so, um, and, you know, William W. Phelps, of course, who fancied himself to be uh, a great linguistic, which I don't think he was at all, and, uh, you know, a reader of books and so on. But um, so we, we don't even have to say that he was getting all this 
directly from reading any source himself. I mean, he could have got it from anyone around him because it's what I have referred to in the past as prophetic eclecticism, where Joseph Smith was like an environmental sponge. Everybody around him who was feeding him information were unwittingly giving him ideas of what to do and what to say. And then he would recast them in his own form. And so, yeah, I mean, and we'll get to that more in a second. So. Right. And culturally speaking, it's kind of like the idea that there was a UFO crash in Roswell, Arizona. Uh, pretty right. much the majority, I'm going to guess, of people, at least in the United States, are aware of that story, whereas probably not all of them have actually read documents themselves about it. Right, right. Now, there were some sources that you came up with, Brent, along these lines about this tradition of yeah. Abraham and his attempted sacrifice yeah. that may be new to the scene. Can you uh, talk about these now? I was going to read these, okay, only yeah. because I was asked to. But on this screen, which Dan was nice enough to make with your sources that you provided, are 19th century sources describing in detail the attempted execution of Abraham in Nimrod's furnace. Now, these are four face pages or title pages, I, sh I should say, of the four different documents that you came up with. One of them, one on the furthest left. And by the way, is it possible to uh, blow those up a little bit, Maven? Nope. Okay. Uh. Thanks a lot. Oh, it, well, it, it, maybe you can read it better than I can. The first well, one is the history. They're bigger on the next slides. Are they? Right. Yeah, they're Okay, bigger. good. Oh, yeah, thank you. Here we go. How's that? Right here. So this one, the first one is the minutes of an address delivered before the anti-Masonic convention of reading Massachusetts. This is from January of night of, excuse me, of 18. I think that's 29. Am I reading right. that correctly? Yes. yes. By Reverend P. Sanborn. So the interesting thing here is that this legend is so ubiquitous in this time and place of Joseph Smith that it even shows up in an anti-Masonic tract from 1829. Yes. And there we have Section 5, Dialogue Between Abraham and Nimrod, right? These are the main players. <clears throat> Nimrod commanded Abraham to worship the fire, but Abraham said no. And it goes back and forth. Why should I worship the fire when water can put out the fire? Well, then worship the water. Why should I worship the water when, you know, the clouds sustain the water? Well, worship the clouds. Why should I? This is his back and forth dialogue between Nimrod and Abraham. It's quite clever. And it's finally leading to the fact that no matter what it is you talk about, you worship, there's always something above it until you get to the one God who is the creator of all things. And that is who Abraham says should be worshiped. And this doesn't go over very well with Nimrod because he thinks that uh, Abraham is making fun of him or deriding him. And he says, look, uh, I only worship the fire. And if you don't do the same thing, my intention is to throw you into the fire. I'm doing a little bit of uh, RFM uh, interpretation ah, on this, nice. the RFM translation. And then I shall see whether the God you worship will come to your relief and immediately had him thrown into the fiery furnace. In the interim, they question his brother Haran, or Haran, that's Abraham's brother, concerning his faith 
who answered, if, if Abraham succeeds, I will be of his faith. But if not, I'll be of Nimrod's faith. Wise guy, Heron. He is definitely hedging his bets. He's even Andrew hedging his bets. <laughs> so upon which Nimrod ordered him to be thrown into the fire. Likewise. Oh, that wasn't good enough for Nimrod, where he was presently consumed. You see, because Haran was of mixed faith. He's consumed by the fire when he gets thrown in. But Abraham came out of the furnace smelling like a freaking rose, right? Without receiving the least injury. So here's a source, 1829, in an anti-Masonic tract that is published in 1829, I think I said, in Massachusetts. Correct. Next. This is from the History of Redemption. And these things have very long titles, and some of the words are too small for me to read, but that's mainly... This is by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards being a very, very famous preacher in Joseph and, Smith's day. And I should I should add that the material here, because one. this is an edited volume of Jonathan Edwards' book from uh, 1793. And so what you see here are footnotes that have been added by the editors. Right. So the editors are, this is a collection of sermons or writings by Jonathan Edwards and the editors who put them together, put footnotes on them, and they include the same story about Nimrod and Abraham. Same. And it looks like very much the same story that was exactly. told in the, in the one before. Precisely. Exactly. The same tradition. Yes. Yeah. And next. This is Lala Ruch. An Oriental Romance by Thomas Moore. Now, that's a famous name, Thomas Moore. I don't know if it's the same one. Right, it is. Is it? But it's from 1820, published in London. And this is where, in a footnote, this is a footnote to a book. This is like a, an it, epic poem. Right, exactly. Right. This, is, this is a piece of poetry that he writes. And this is the footnote that he includes. Right, and here it says in foot the footnote is the Gabers. Now, what the heck is a Gaber? G H E B E R S. Oh, wait, I'll bet that's the Hebrews. This. Yes. The Hebrews, the Gabers. Okay. He was a Hebrew Jew. Probably the Gabers story. say that when Abraham, their great prophet, so it is supposed to be a word that means Hebrews, was thrown into the fire by order of Nimrod, the flame turned instantly into a bed of roses where the child sweetly reposed yeah so there it is even in a footnote to an epic poem right this is how hey, widely distributed. yes just a quick note uh gaber a member of an iranian religious sect practicing a modern version of zoroastrianism Thank well that's you. funny because it talks about Ga gaber being uh abraham being their great prophet but regard yeah. regardless thank exactly. you for looking that out that's what the quran Yes. Exactly. Oh, okay. So this would be like from uh, an Islamic yes. tradition. Because yeah, it gets carried over. You got Christian. They originated it actually, and it was uh, imported into uh, Judaism later. You think so? Okay, great. All right. Because I know that there are legends about Abraham from the Christian. Well, let's start with the Jewish tradition, uh, the, the Christian tradition, and certainly from the Islamic tradition, because they are all three people of the book by which is generally meant the Old Testament, right? And just to note, Wikipedia says Zoroastrianism is heavily influenced by the Abrahamic religions. Boom, great. Thank oh. you, Bill. You're a marvel. 
<laughs> so are. there it is again. And now the fourth reference that Brent found through his own personal research. And this is from a book called The History of Persecutions. Um, and it is really, really tough for me to see. That's 1813, 15? Yeah. 13. It's 1813. Yeah. So in the history of persecution, we once again get a reference to this Abrahamic tradition. Abraham suffered many persecutions upon the account of his opposition to the idolatry of his country. And that, and that he was particularly imprisoned for it by Nimrod in Ur. By the way, it's really interesting to me that Joseph Smith, when he has facsimile one, which is which he interprets as being an attempted sacrifice of Abraham by an Egyptian priest, and it's obviously on an Egyptian papyri, that he feels compelled, I'm going to say, to put it and locate it, not in Egypt, but in Ur, in Babylon. Right. And I think that may or may not be significant. Some of the Easter, going on with this quote from the history of persecution, some of the Eastern writers also tell us that he was thrown into the fire, but that he was miraculously preserved from being consumed in it by God. Excuse me. This tradition also the Jews believed and is particularly mentioned by Jonathan's by Jonathan in his Targum. Upon Genesis eleven twenty eight, Nimrod threw Abraham into a furnace of fire because he would not worship his idol, but the fire had no power to burn him. Period. End of quote from the history of persecution. <laughs> so, so ju just to add uh, a quick uh, comment here is that there are numerous sources like this. We 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 don't even begin to have time to go through all of the sources that cover this. We we literally just picked out a few to throw them in here because there are so many. Um, I've got a folder that all it is is 19th century sources on uh relationships to the book of abraham ranging from the crocodile the four sons of uh horus uh the the attempted execution of abraham and there's there's over a thousand files in that folder and so we we don't even have time to begin to go through all of those but but the idea that that uh, folks like Dan and I have not spent time with the Book of Abraham narrative is a false narrative because that's precisely what we've done. And, and that's been our interest is, in fact, I would suspect, I don't know about you, Dan, but certainly for me, that's probably what I was looking at first, right? What I got into this was looking at the narrative and looking at 19th century um, cultural sources, for lack of a better term, or influences that could have, you know, had some impact on the text. And, and I mean, that goes back to the, the early 1980s. 
So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't even want to suggest that, uh, that Dan and I have done anything other than look extremely closely at both the narrative and the manuscripts. That has been our focus. That's certainly been my focus since the 80s. And so I don't know where people get this idea from that um, so-called critics of the church, which I, again, as the title of this podcast says, I view this as critical scholarship. This is what biblical critics do. It's what other scholars do when they're analyzing texts like this. And so I, I want to make it really clear that this is something that, that Dan and I and others have been looking at for decades. This is nothing new to us. And, and for apologists to suggest that we have ignored the text and only focused on the manuscripts, frankly, is utter nonsense. Dan. Mm. Yes. We're going to do this on this wonderful presentation. We're at 7.15 okay. now, my time, 8.15, Bill's time, 9.15, Dan's time, and 10.15, Brent's time. We we'll basically got back. the entire nation covered. We'll have to okay. come you're gonna You're definitely going to come back. We're going to arrange it. But what I want to do is put out the call for phone calls. And while we're doing that, uh, sure. give Dan the chance to respond to what John Gee said uh, in the same way that um, Brent did, or at least on that same issue. Can we put out the call number first? Yeah, it, yep. So to call the show, it is, uh, I'm going to wait for it here to show back up one more time. There's something so about I a can... 666 in there. I know that. Yeah, yeah. It's a four or oh. sorry, 662 667 6667 or 662 Mormons with an S on the end. And uh, please call in now. We'll get a couple of callers in. And Dan, by all means. And Dan, now, what would you say? We've got John Gee. He's present. He's not talking. Oh, it's He's... right there. Huh? What would you say to him about his comment from just last December that the problem with you, Dan, is you don't look at the text of the Book of Abraham? Oh, so uh, he said that in that interview. Well, my book had been out for nearly a year almost. He's saying, making those statements that we don't pay attention to the English text. And then he proceeds to go on and talk about the characters uh, coming from various parts of, of the horror papyrus. And all of that is answered in that book. And he can say that. And, and the reason why he says stuff like that is because he has also said on other occasions he doesn't pay attention to what the critics say. So maybe he should change his view. If you're really interested in the truth, you go everywhere. I, I, I read his stuff. I read whoever's stuff to learn whatever I can, wherever I can, and um, looking for the truth. That's what scholars do. 
they read everybody. They don't have any boundaries about, you know, they're not politically motivated. Uh, and they're looking for the truth no matter where it is. Very or else good. you're going to get caught with your pants down. Maybe he's concerned that if he starts reading your books, he, uh, John Gee will go the way of Brian Howglid. Well, uh, I think they're both giving out hints that they're going to switch over to uh, the catalyst theory. Yeah. And they both being Mulestein and, and Gee, we'll, correct? We'll be there I waiting for him. Oh, we're going to talk about that next time, believe me. That's huge. He huge. really walked that line. Like, I, I kind of lean towards the missing scroll, but... The, yeah. you know, the catalyst theory, I get it. I can, I can see it. I just, it, it was such a difference, wasn't it? It, oh, you're nailed it, Dan. I think he is setting himself up to be able to switch teams, kind of like Haglid yeah. did after the uh, Ugo Prego yeah. uh, announcement, right? That's where everybody's going. See, uh, if you're, you're hanging on to a literal uh, position, a literal position, there. If the whole, Perigo, the whole is it Perigo? I think I, I pronounced it wrong. Ugo. Hugo Perigo, maybe. I always have trouble. Yeah, yeah, no biggie. Anyway, yeah, finished. Dan. Sorry about that. Isn't that the DNA guy? Yeah, the yeah. Genetics. And then he said that uh, the the lion's kid wasn't uh, Joseph Smith. Meanwhile, Haglitz's uh, ideology required yeah. that to be the case. And so, as soon as the announcement was made, he announced how he had switched teams and he was on the other side now. And yeah. oh yeah, anyway. I see. In that issue, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. similar. Okay. Anyway, just. I saw so uh, yeah, it, so Milstein and Guy have a, a fundamentalist interpretation of the of uh, or a paradigm they're they're working in to understand and interpret the Book of Abraham. So they look at the Hor Papyrus. So if the Hor Papyrus uh, isn't translatable into the Book of Abraham, well, there had to be some document that Joseph translated that uh, was the book of Abraham written in Egyptian. And um, since it talks about the facsimiles in chapter one of the book of Abraham, it had to be at the end. You know, there had to be two books attached to each other. And that's the logic that they follow. And that's just a, a literal fundamentalist thing. And they're stuck in that mode for now. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the younger apologists have moved on to uh, accept the evidence, the obvious evidence has been obvious from the, the day one or a few days after, you know, Gerald Tanner and, and um, Heward, um, I forget his name, uh, they wrote an article in Dialogue showing that the characters on the, in the margins are copied sequentially from the Horror Papyrus. And that was out. That was it. It was over. Game over. Well, then we had a few people that are very stubborn and want it to be literal. And so they make up stuff that doesn't really pan out very well. And no one's really challenged them for many years. And that's why I took it on. Well, but we, Brent and I, we, we knew all, all the stuff that's in my book. Decades ago, I mean, it comes from Edward Ashman, partially, yeah. you know, and I decided to put it into the book, uh, expand it a little bit, give it a more historical sense to each of these points of view, and to show that the reverse translation theory is just an apologetic and nibbly apologetic that 
was made up before Nibley knew anything about the papyrus or or the grammar. He had he said he hadn't spent like 15 minutes on the grammar, you know, when he made up the reverse translation theory and tried to get Joseph Smith out of the bind, you know. So anyway, I yeah, wish and I would say you know just a read my book and uh if he disagrees, respond to it. Respond to and, it. And Enter the dialogue that scholars are already engaged with. He doesn't even respond to Robert Ridner. Yeah, and, and I, ju I just, I just have, to, I just have to say that one of the worst pieces on the Book of Abraham manuscripts that I think has ever been written. It's so awful is the meaning of the Kirtland Egyptian papers yes, by Hugh Nibley. Yeah. And that is cited by everyone. Yeah. And it is so inaccurate time and time again. And it's like, Hugh, how, how did you get this stuff so wrong? And, and it's clear that he, he was probably not given access to the originals and was working off of microfilms. And um, and so I kind of give him a bit of a pass on that, right? But at the same time, I want to alert people to say that that is one of the most inaccurate articles I have ever read on the manuscripts of the book of Abraham and the Egyptian project for that matter. And yet some of the very arguments that he makes in, in that article continue on to this day. Mm -hmm. And it's you like, know, how? you know, warmed over. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like all of the same uh, apologetic, keep it alive. They're keeping it alive. But I'm hoping that those are signs that we've been perceiving of them going towards the catalyst theory. Uh, it's a somewhat better <laughs> theory, even though it does have uh, problems. Right. Right. You know, I just got and done it, listening. It at least gives gives people an option of their own spiritual quest that that lies outside of you know, talking about, uh, I don't know, the the physicality and everything else of all of these documents and manuscripts and going into details and arguing about, you know, what's ancient, what isn't. But, but there are still some with the catalyst theory who still believe that what's being revealed is ancient. Right. Yes. Right? And yes. that's every bit as problematic as the initial theories. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like I I don't know how, how are you going to take it? Do do you want your catalyst theory to be basically that this was a product of Joseph Smith's experience with God, or do you want it to actually be? that this was God revealing to Joseph Smith an ancient record. Right. And if it's the latter, 
you're going to have problems. And well, mainly because it refers to facsimile one. Right. And that's that's what I'm saying, right? Is that it, it's like... You cannot totally separate it from precisely. the diary. So some want to propose an unconscious fraud, and then I want to propose a conscious deception on Joseph's part. He may have felt inspired in a very general, loose kind of way, like a patriarch giving you a patriarchal blessing feels inspired. Um, but he felt authorized to use deception in order to get people to believe what he thought was a, an inspired, his inspired writing. And, and this is where you all know I love Dan as much as I can love Dan, right? He's like a brother to me. But this is something where we kind of part ways, especially on this project. And the reason why is that I was actually asked at a dinner I was at, asked to speak at at the Alta Club. And, you know, I mentioned during the course of this that I think that there are clear occasions where Joseph Smith was obviously sincere in what he was doing. And the person who had kind of organized the whole thing, it was just a small intimate gathering. And I actually had some of my family members there. And he asked me, can you give us the number one example of Joseph Smith being sincere in anything with his revelations. And I said, well, to be honest with you, I haven't thought about what the number one is, but I can give you a couple of examples. And the ones that I gave were, one is, is a curse that, that he puts upon Philastus Hurlbut that's in his journal. And it's in his handwriting. And I said, this is an example of where he believes that God is behind him on this, right? He actually invokes God's name in the curse, right? And he has an audience of one himself. That's it. There's nobody else that he's trying to impress. And then I get to the Egyptian project where Joseph Smith has an audience of two, Oliver Cowdery and William W. Phelps. And he has no plans to publish this stuff. He's just going through it, and I look at that and go, man, I'm having a hard time with just saying that he was consciously acting as a fraud doing this to impress these two people when he already had so many people being disrupted by other revelations that he had given. Why would he care about impressing two ardent, and I mean 
ardent believers in what he was doing. In fact, during the time that they're working on this project, right? When Oliver Cowdery comes to the uh, Patriarchal Blessing Book, and he's working on it with Joseph Smith, they're actually making changes to earlier blessings that Joseph Smith had given to other people. And then Oliver Cowdery actually has a vision of the future life of Joseph Smith. And he goes through it in detail, and, and he is saying things that never came to pass, right? He says that, that Joseph Smith would live to a good old age and until his hair was like the wool. Well, that never happened. And then at the end of it, he says, and I unless the the reader doubt what I'm saying, I wrote this while I was in my vision. So these guys are ardent believers. Joseph Smith did not have to convince them of anything. And yet here he is doing this project that's going into all this detail of this Egyptian stuff. And I look at that and think, no, we're, we're seeing Joseph Smith at work. We're seeing Joseph Smith, the believer, doing his thing. And it may be completely nonsensical to us in a modern era, just like people speaking in tongues or doing other stuff that we think is kind of on the fringe. But I, I can't look at all that and say that Joseph Smith was consciously trying to deceive anyone during that time. And even when he publishes the Book of Abraham, the church never sees the manuscripts that they come from, right? And that's where he's inventing characters and doing all kinds of things to make this thing make sense to him and his scribes. And then he goes ahead and publishes this thing as canon in the Times and Seasons. Well, semi-canon. And I, I look at that and say, I, I think what you're looking at is who Joseph Smith really was. And that was that he was a religionist of his era. They had extreme ideas and views. And they were being released in all these different revelatory ways that some of us would never agree with. And so for me to say that he is consciously trying to deceive people, I have a problem with that any more than I do when I look at the folks back in his day who claimed to have very similar visions to Joseph Smith's first vision. 
I don't think that they were all trying to consciously deceive anyone. I think that they were people of their time who understood their experience, strange as it may be to all of us, right? And I'm certainly not imputing the divine to it, but it's a completely foreign world to us. You know, this is a world where they believe in that magic exists, that treasures can actually sink into the ground and then hurl themselves along the ground. This is a world that none of us can relate to. And so that's why I kind of take a pause on that and step back. And believe me, I appreciate what my brother Dan is saying. Because Dan and I have talked about this many times. And not really. I understand where he's coming from. But but you know, I just had to throw hey, that Brent, your your so position is others yeah. don't always agree. Hey, listen, your position is that Joseph Smith, all that stuff he dictated, the book of Abraham and the alphabet and grammar, he believed he was really translating. I I think that he had a completely different sense of what translation was. So, for example, you sound like an apologist. Yeah, so does the LDS Church in 2022. (laughs) So, so listen for a second. When he's inventing those characters, right? Yes. Well, guess what? Some of those invented characters that are in those documents come from earlier things that he had already been working on, on the Adamic language. And I think that. And and these were things that no one would have ever seen. I mean, the only reason why we know he was doing this before the Egyptian alphabet manuscripts is because William W. Phelps records them in a letter to his wife, Sally, in May. So, Brent, do you think that the angels really came and ordained them? Oh, hell no, Dan. Well, that that's is what not they, what I'm saying at all. Okay. Well, you're in now that case, using the, the, the papyri with a fake history that they had just invented. Of course, he's not playing to Cowdery. Cowdery's playing right. with him against W.W. W. Phelps. W.W. Phelps, w. Phelps is a supposed expert in the church on languages, and right. he's working with Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith wants his testimony. But, but he, he already has it, right? Phelps is but not about working. the book of Abraham. No, but Phelps is already working on the the DNC and revising it. And then it, when you go back to the to the May 1826 1827 letter to his wife Sally, he has a specimen of the pure language of Adam. And it's like Phelps is the only one who knows about this, right? So far. We haven't found it in any other document. 
well, have we have the English, the English part of it in an earlier version, 1832, right. is in exactly. the, the Revelation book. Exactly. In fact, well, it's in more than just the Revelation book. Yes, because, it's in other places, yeah, which it, well, it, theory that it was just a thing that he showed Phelps. Yeah, it's in two two other documents. The the one by uh, 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 Fergie Williams, and then one by uh, Pratt as well, right? Because Pratt refers to it in in conference back in Utah when he gets there. But but what I'm saying is is that you have this situation of where you know. Phelps is writing this stuff down and the way he writes it down, because this is the first time in this specimen that he sends to Sally that we see the characters associated with the interpretations of the Adamic language. And it's written out in the same way that we're going to find these so-called Egyptian characters in the Egyptian alphabet. It's categorized in the same columns going down. And that's before he ever gets the, the papyrus. So, okay. so that's all. That's so the all. Of evidence you know, I think people an are just fraud. Okay. I'm just, Were there real plates? Were there real plates? Did no. Just people with fake. I was going to so say, maybe you're in Bushman's camp. <laughs> No, I, no, I, no. I I when he gets the book of Abraham, he's sincere. Right, right. So, so here you go. I don't <laughs> believe that there were any plates at all. So there, Dan. Not, not, not fabricated plates. Nothing. And I think because, Joseph Smith was sincere, but used deception. Right, right. So, so, so here you go. Where I'm getting this from is the early revelations talk about well they actually give the exact ways that someone can see the plates and one is that joseph smith has no power to show the plates to anyone right and secondly they have to have faith in god they have to be given a commission by God to see them. And then they have to have faith enough to see the plates. That suggests to me that there are no plates at all. And I, I mean, when I read the stories about what's happening with the plates, when the plates get passed out the window of the house, to his sister and she just takes them in the box and goes off of them and i'm like how are you carrying anything like that you know you're you're this young girl and you're going off with these plates and then of course when they go to the cooper's shop and they rip up the floorboards this is the money diggers who are now coming after the plates. And all they find is the smashed box that supposedly he kept them in underneath the floorboards. 
And Joseph goes, oh, well, it's good thing, a good thing that I put him in a barrel of beans. <laughs> and it worked for some of them. <laughs> right. And, and I'm just like, wait a second. They, those money diggers found the plates and it was an empty box. Those were the plates. And that's what they found. Uh, the money diggers didn't find it. Justice Smith broke the box. Right. Well, either way, doesn't matter to me. Right? If there the, were the plates, point, they were in there. The well, the point is, is that... Justice Smith broke the box in order to create... The money diggers couldn't find it because the stone never worked. And uh, the story is not in the barrel of beans. The plates were up in the loft in the hay. I mean, right, they, right. Didn't, okay, they didn't that, search the cooper shop. They, they just went for the floor. Uh, you know, the stone didn't work. They didn't find the plates. Joseph no. Smith broke the plates. That's the most logical answer. I think right, the plates right. were in the so, conservatory so with the good. candlestick. That's all good. But still, when... Anyway, we know, should get on to calls. Right, right. <laughs> but just a, a last point. When oh, man. Get to place places where people had opportunities to view the plates they never do i mean i'm talking about emma smith supposedly rustling the edge of the plates never looks under the cloth they go to isaac hale's home isaac hale never goes into the room to take a peek at the plates and it, it's kind of like every opportunity that someone has to have to see the political, or I'm sorry, the physical. He doesn't want to show his tin plates. It's completely ignored. What? He, that, he, he, the plates are tin. That's why no one sees them. Well, I'm just saying, why doesn't anyone peek under the cloth? Well, they're scared. I would. I mean, that would be the first thing I would do. I'd walk into the room and go, wait, so you're telling me. They don't want to be are these yeah. things. There are yeah, these if you look, plates. you're done. There are you're these smitten, Brent. plates underneath <laughs> this cloth, and I can't peek under it and take a look. It's like, oh, Joseph's out of the room looking left and right pick up it it up and but nobody ever does that you and, and i would but we we don't believe anything's gonna happen right i think vogel's right i think they're scared shitless well no it's like the final oh. scene of raiders of the lost ark <laughs> right right but, but the thing is is that i don't know if they have that <laughs> perception but i think that um there is this criteria okay if they're not looking right? under the cloth you that implies something's there what's there brent a box uh, just there's the a box. box that he has it in emma said it rough ruffled rustled uh, with the sound of metal and and so dan, did demon dan money diggers heard the treasure rumbling through the earth <laughs> 
Right. Once some of it's that made up, it can be just that made up. <laughs> exactly. Can I just make an observation to try and tie a bow on this and get some calls? Yeah. In? So, so I, I think it's. I just want to tell you this. Go ahead. I, I do love still you. love you, Brent. I still love you too, and I just want you guys to know that we can talk about this stuff Amen. this way, right? And we still yeah. come away as best friends. Yes. Yeah. So, if you love and respect each other, yeah. Oh hell yeah! Expect yeah. one of you to start saying, "I'm on top yeah. of the world." Or is it I'm king of the world? <laughs> Whatever that line is from Titanic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just want people to see that that scholars can have different perspectives. Yeah. And they don't always have to agree. But that doesn't mean that we don't respect the other scholars' opinions. Because what Dan says, I respect. I look at his ideas and I say, you know something? He's got a point. I can't say he doesn't have a point, right? Because I think he has a point. And I'm just saying, and I have another point, but it may or may not be the most accurate because now we're, not, we're talking about how do we interpret the most nebulous elements of early Mormon history, right? Yeah. And that's spiritual artifacts, for goodness sake. And um, I, I think it's okay for each of us to have our own opinions and still walk away as wonderful friends. And Dan and I have done this time and time again. And and Dan, you know I love you. And I'm talking too long. Go on. <laughs> You're right, Brent. My only observation that I was going to make this before I get these phone calls in here. Exactly. Is it was that I think it's I think it's wonderful that the the one of the two of you who believes that Joseph Smith was sincere in some ways. Yeah. Is the one who's arguing that there were no plates at all. Exactly. <laughs> the irony. The irony of it all. Yes. Oh, I love it. We'll call it a tie. You guys, you guys both made some good points. Uh, yes. It's a tie. We're just we're usually entertaining. Call. I think the audience we, is loving can it. Can we still get yeah. some calls in though? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. All right. So here's the first one. This yeah, is uh, this, probably. What's what's that? <laughs> and it, it, let me just add to just quickly what an eclectic aggregator he was like there is a miracle in taking all of this stuff and putting it together in a coherent story it, to me that's beautiful yeah. all right mormon jesus uh wants to talk about joseph smith's photographic memory uh mormon jesus you're on with mormonism live go ahead thank you yes dan vogel and brent metcalf I, i'd like you guys to gain a testimony of joseph smith's photographic memory when I created Joseph Smith, I gave him a photographic memory. And the reason he is able to do all the dictations that Dan speaks of, or the catalyst theory that Brent speaks of, is because any book he read, such as the Dartmouth College books that Hiram had obtained, or Adam Clark's commentary, he could simply scroll through his mind and dictate any part he wanted. And I really think it would come in handy when you communicate with your apologetic friends that you testify that you know Joseph Smith 
has a photographic memory. Just like when they say they know Joseph Smith is a prophet. Yeah, no, thank you, caller. Dan? Um, there's no evidence that Joe Smith quoted anything besides the Bible. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and on that much they agree. Um, anyway, I, I think that's of no. All right, Trevor is caller number two. Trevor, you're on Mormonism Live. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, yes, I've actually been sitting on this question for a month, waiting for this episode. So Love it. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to steel man this, uh, this argument, um, because it's way too involved. But there's a man that I've been talking to called uh, named Paul Gregerson, um, and he claims he claims that all the scholars and all the church apologetics or apologists um, have it wrong and that Joseph Smith was never translating anything to correspond with ancient Egyptian. Um, and in, in, uh, instead, it correlates with the book of Genesis. Um, and I was just wondering if Dan or Brent, and I know that uh, backyard professors in the uh, chat, um, I was wondering if you guys have heard of him and what your thoughts on his take on it is. Awesome. Yes, Thank you. Have. have you heard of him, Brent? No, this is yours. Oh, you're not missing much. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, Grierson, yeah, he has a a few videos out that I watched part part of before I couldn't take anymore. Uh, but um, he does, he has this theory, but he has no evidence for it. But his presentation of it is uh, that uh, the how Joseph Smith, he uses numbers to get a, a different translation uh, and to try to show how Joseph Smith used, and the numbers he uses are the numbers in the times and seasons on the facsimiles. So he talks about the fact, he only talks about the facsimiles as far as I know. But it's, it's. I'll stick with the majority of the experts on Egyptology <laughs> and uh, Grierson can have, he can make up anything he wants to make up and see connections wherever he wants to see connections. But can he present it in a scholarly fashion that will convince other scholars at the same time of saying that all the scholars in the world are wrong except him? Well, I, that, I think that tells us where he's coming from right there. Okay. Yeah, I'd seen some of that stuff too. And, and again, I don't know near as much as any of the three of you. Um, but as I started to look at it, it, it just right away didn't seem reasonable to me. It didn't seem to make rational sense. All right, can we've I got two more quick, please. Can I just interject by saying that it is amazing to me the fecundity of the human imagination to come up with explanations to account for Joseph Smith's translation, all for one reason and one reason only, because his translation does not match the Egyptian that was on the papyri. Yeah, and an unwillingness to maybe face the most rational conclusion. Um, because 
that answer isn't the answer we want. They're about saving Joseph Smith from himself. Yeah. Yep. All right. Somebody here wants to talk about they can't really uh, tolerate Mormon scholars. So I don't, I'm curious if they mean like all Mormon scholars or like believing Mormon scholars. So you are on the air, my friend. Hello. Okay. I'm going to drop that one. They probably went to sleep waiting so long. They probably did. They were on hold for a little while. So our last, our last caller is Kobe. And uh, Kobe, you're on Mormonism Live. What do you What do you have for us tonight? Hey, Bill. Hey, RFM and uh, Dan and Brent. Thanks for being here. Um, when you were talking about, first, I just want to thank Dan for his book, Abraham book. I just finished it today, and it's fantastic. Um, my thank question you. for Dan and Brent is whether in the facsimile three the slave that you were talking about did the did the egyptians even have dark-skinned slaves at that time because my understanding is they mostly had caucasian slaves from europe and is that just another example of joseph's racism coming through seeing a dark figure and calling that a slave Okay, and, and hang on just a second, Kobe, because I, Dan has that look on his face like he doesn't know what we're asking. So I want to make sure you understand well, the question. It, it sounded kind of broken up, you know, kind of. So I couldn't get every word. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know enough about this stuff to repeat it to you. And my, you know, well, um, I, I heard it was just racist, and I would say uh, yes. <laughs> Are you talking about Anubis in the facsimile three, Kobe? Olimla. I'm wondering oh, if that I'm wondering if the black the placement of a black slave is anachronistic. That's really the question I'm asking. Yeah. Okay. Say that again. I'm sorry, Kobe. I'm not trying is to the be, question I, of I a black slave anachronistic. Is a black slave oh, anachronistic? Oh, you mean did, did the Egyptians have black slaves? Yes. <laughs> I guess they got them wherever <laughs> they could get them. That's just yeah. me. Uh, so well if they didn't, I, I we've got a problem. The, the black slave is an you know American thing, right? And uh, well, the slaves have been around since the beginning of time, and then weren't necessarily associated with race. Uh, exactly. But in America, the bl blacks became the objects of slavery, and so they had to justify it. They would uh, refer to the Bible. Um. Yeah, uh, you know Genesis. You know about Canaan being the the slave of uh, in the tents of Shem, and and Joseph Smith actually, in the inspired revision, enhanced that and said that a darkness yeah. came upon Canaan, and so he, even though he tried to take an abolitionist position when he was trying to get the land back in Jackson County. Um, early on, when he's working on the Bible revision in Genesis, he actually is helping support slavery by enhancing that passage in Genesis. So, yes, Joseph, Joseph Smith was a racist. Yeah. And, and he's trying it in the scriptures, and I'm glad to be rid of it. Right. And, and I would say that 
he was as racist as the people who wrote the Constitution of the United States, which basically treats black folk, right, as less than, less than, almost less than human. They're less than white people, right? And um, when when you look at that picture, it's um, it's obvious where his mind went, and it went in a similar direction to what we would find in the Constitution of the United States. As awful as that may seem, a lot of people may not even realize that they should go back and read it. You know, where it explains the worth of, um, you know, a black man in in the United States. Well, yeah, you got a black person in this facsimile and what's it going to be except for a slave? Right. From Joseph Smith's point of view, by the way, did a little impromptu research. Happy to report that. Yes, my guess is right. Of course, they're going to get him from wherever they can. They can go out to the. The white people or they can go, uh, the Egyptians can go west or south up the Nile to get slaves from black, uh, black people. So here's what slavery in Egypt from Wikipedia says, right? The people enslaved in Egypt during Islamic times, of course, that's Islamic times, isn't it? That's probably later. Anyway, mostly came from Europe and Caucasus, referred to as white, or from the Sudan and Africa south of the Sahara <clears throat> through the trans-Saharan slave trade referred to as black. That says that's Islamic times. I don't know why it would be any different in uh, earlier times, but I could be corrected on that. Yeah, and, and and whether whether it was or not, I mean, don't forget I, there were also traditions during that time that Egyptians themselves were black, right? I mean, that's kind of where you get the the concept of this is black as Egypt. Yeah. And yeah, I can see and so, so, so there were concepts of that back in that time. But I think that, that Joseph Smith is imposing an American construct yeah. onto this facsimile. I do too. And I think we see that in the Book of Mormon too, where in this Nephite record, all of a sudden it starts talking about how all are equal before God, black and white, slave or bond and free, which seems right. a little bit jarring in the context. It looks like the 19th century in which Joseph Smith is inhabiting suddenly gets pushed into the text of an ancient thing that he's translating. By the way, something else says that in ancient Egypt, black slaves were used for domestic service and were also used as soldiers. Right. And just and so people are clear, I'm not laughing at you talking about slaves. There's just a comment about Brent's arms are still so massive. He's almost splitting those sleeves open. I just, I over here chuckling while you're talking about slavery. And I wanted to make sure the audience knew where my laugh yeah. was coming from. Don't get okay. Brent mad. I'll turn I, into a raging green. I, I apologize for that. No, no, dude. If, if you get you me worked angry, out more than me, you deserve it. <laughs> so if you get me angry, my shit. My shirt yeah. will completely rip open. So yeah, yeah. I hear you, brother. Glad you're there and I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our calls for the night. Uh, anything else from URFM before we close out the show? 
I'm sorry. Was that you, Brent? <laughs> no, that was Bill. It's not my. Oh house. God, the barking! You knew no. this. That's embarrassing. Not and without a snout, it's not. So, so <laughs> we we have four dogs here, and they're making their presence well known right now. So I apologize for that. No, that's okay. It's great. I love it. I love dogs. So we're going to continue this at a future date. And we'll, with what we have prepared, we can probably fill three more podcasts of a similar length. So don't do any more preparation <laughs> is what I'm saying, Dan. No, no, no. We just use what we got for the next year. Absolutely. I'll tell you yeah, what. Just, right you guys just tell me what well, topics you disagree on, and we'll just put you right. on and give you guys two hours to chat it up. You see, if the audience knew everything that we've been going through in preparation for this and trying to get this thing to work, I think yeah. it's worked splendidly. It's and I'm really glad that uh, Dan and Brand have done everything they've done and that they are cool enough with the whole thing to not only express their opinions to each other and to the audience, but also to just like cut it here and say, okay, we'll save the rest for another day. Amen. And with yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I I, I, did you? Oh, yeah, especially that last half hour. So so I, I just have to end this by telling Dan again that he's he's my brother. I love him. He knows that. And and Dan, I can't wait to see you again. It's oh, okay. been it's been way too long. I mean, this pandemic crap has just been awful. And I, I want to see my friends again. That's you a good know, way to be very careful. Yeah, my wife, my wife. Yeah, right. I know. I understand. I understand. Now, Maven yeah. has shown up, and I, Maven, are you eating yeah. something? Well, I think is this breakfast? breakfast? <laughs> Everybody's eating. Sorry. So so wait a second. Did, did we go on for that long? That Just about <laughs> it's one o'clock somewhere. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, no, no. Just we're good. I'm just making a joke. Sorry, everybody. Maven, please. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to say, Maven? We we got a two thousand dollar donation. I think holy Toledo. Friend, nice. Aaron, I don't know. Yeah, wow, yeah. thank Thanks you. So We're good luck, aren't we? Yeah, look <laughs> yeah. at that. Awesome. Absolutely. I'm sorry, I was I was uh shouting at the time. Who is that from? Did you say Maven? It says Aaron Metcalf. Ooh. So is that yeah. <laughs> who the hell is that? I, I have got no idea. <laughs> but we've got to have you thank on the you, show Aaron. more often, Brent. I may be related <laughs> to her. I'm not letting my wife watch so, this. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. You guys all, you guys said a lot of things. We're going to let somebody else get the last word in. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And so I start out with an assumption that the book of Abraham and the book of Mormon and anything else, <clears throat> excuse me, that we get from uh, the restored gospel is true. Therefore, any evidence I find, I will try and fit into that paradigm. I don't feel that I need to defend that paradigm. I feel that I want to understand the evidence that I find within that paradigm because to me it's a given that it's true. There are others who will assume that it's not true, and on these points we'll just have to agree to disagree, but we will understand one another better 
when we understand how our beginning assumptions uh, color the way we, we filter all of the evidence that we find. Those damn assumptions. So